Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Sin City Stories contains explicit content that may be disturbing to some listeners, including strong language, graphic details, and depictions of violent crimes. Listener discretion is advised. During the 1970s, the Las Vegas Hilton featured some of the most modern amenities in town, along with incredible showcase entertainers. The hotel looked poised for additional growth and success heading into the 1980s. But the deadliest arson in modern Nevada history temporarily derailed the steady expansion the Hilton had enjoyed, while putting a young hotel busboy in the national spotlight as the unlikely hero turned suspect behind the blaze. Since its founding on May 15, 1905, Las Vegas has gone from being a small railway stop in the middle of the Mojave Desert to a glittering neon oasis of gambling, shopping, fine dining, and entertainment, welcoming tens of millions of visitors from around the world every year. Through its relatively short history, the city has been witness to over a century's worth of murder, robberies, arson, and mayhem. And that's what we're here to share with you. In collaboration with MayhemInTheDesert.com, this is Sin City Stories, Vegas True Crime. The sordid tales behind the stranger-than-fiction history of fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. The Las Vegas Hilton grew into one of the most happening places in town over the course of the 1970s. The central tower of the property was the first part of the hotel to be constructed in 1969, which originally opened as The International. The hotel, owned by the legendary Kirk Kerkorian, kept with the resort's name and included rooms furnished to match different international decors with each floor featuring either a Spanish, Italian, or French theme. By the end of 1971, Kerkorian had sold his shares in the International to Hilton Hotels, who renamed the property the Las Vegas Hilton. Although the resort had performed somewhat unevenly during its early years as the International, under the Hilton name and ownership, it soon came to be regarded as one of the most successful hotels in Las Vegas. By the mid-1970s, demand at the Hilton had outgrown availability, and work began on expanding capacity of the property, with the construction of the East Tower in 1975, followed by the addition of the North Tower in 1979. By 1981, the Las Vegas Hilton was the largest hotel in the United States, featuring over 2,700 rooms. On any given day, the Hilton brought in thousands of patrons, with draws that included their state-of-the-art sports book, multiple dining options, and legendary Vegas headliners like Elvis and Liberace. Plus, the Hilton's location in close proximity to the Las Vegas Convention Center helped keep occupancy rates high as the city gained a reputation for hosting large conventions and conferences for every type of group imaginable. Between guests lounging in their rooms and patrons filling the restaurants and showrooms on the ground floor of the casino, around 4,000 people were packed into the bustling Las Vegas Hilton on the night of February 10, 1981. 
Philip Klein, a 23-year-old busboy who'd only recently started working at the Hilton, went on his break at 8 p.m. when he noticed a small fire in an eighth-floor elevator lobby of the East Tower. Klein rushed to a nearby courtesy phone and dialed the hotel operator to alert the security department. After he raised the alarm, the busboy hung up the phone and grabbed a nearby trash can. Klein headed to a sink in a guest room and filled the trash can with water, returning to the fire, where he futilely flung the liquid at the growing inferno. Klein was relieved when a security guard appeared on the scene with a fire extinguisher in hand, but his heart sank when the extinguisher failed to work. The guard threw the useless red metal tube to the ground and left to find a functioning extinguisher. Klein remained, but by this point, the fire was growing at a rapid rate, feeding on the carpeted walls and ceiling lining the elevator lobby. Klein retreated from the increasing heat before he made the decision to abandon his post. As the suffocating smoke generated by the flames grew darker and fell lower down the hallway, Klein knocked on several doors to alert guests of the threat before making his way to the stairwell. He exited on the second floor and burst into the room service employee area to warn everyone of the danger unfolding above, prompting his colleagues to commence their evacuation of the hotel. Meanwhile, the fire was rapidly becoming uncontrollable. The blaze flashed over, and the temperature in the eighth floor elevator lobby rose to the point where it shattered the glass of the large window overlooking the city. This allowed the flames to flicker out into the cool Vegas night, and in a horrific cascading effect, the fire began climbing up the facade of the hotel, breaking windows as it went, stretching from the 8th floor all the way up to the 30th floor, cutting a V-shaped gash into the exterior of the Hilton. The fire spewed ceaseless volumes of acrid smoke into the stairwells, which became so thick it was barely possible for escaping guests to even see their hands in front of their faces as they fled for safety. Fortunately, a few guests had the foresight to hold wet towels to their faces in an attempt to blunt the effects of the smoke as they made their escape. Guests who managed to escape by descending the stairs and exiting at the ground floor were covered in soot, with many coughing and crying uncontrollably from the blistering effects of the smoke. As for Philip Klein, he eventually made his way to the employee parking lot, where he watched alongside his co-workers as the fire consumed the hotel's East Tower. The chaos unfolding on the upper floors of the Hilton was contrasted with scenes of calm on the two ground floor levels of the establishment, where many guests reported never even hearing a fire alarm. It fell to rank-and-file employees to perform the task of ensuring an orderly evacuation of the Hilton's restaurants and showrooms. While one guest and her husband were dining at a Japanese restaurant on the ground floor of the hotel, their waiter brought the check and then nonchalantly informed the couple they should finish their drinks and head toward the exits as there was an undescribed issue on the upper floors. Patrons chatted as they exited the ground floor, some still carrying their cocktails only to be confronted with the jarring sight of furniture crashing to the pavement as hotel guests smashed their room windows with whatever was available to gain relief from the stifling smoke. Outside, the Hilton developed a chaotic juxtaposition of uninjured patrons in dining attire intermixed with hotel guests dressed in blackened nightgowns and pajamas who'd just escaped the upper floors of the hotel. 
Stunned guests and employees massing outside watched in dreadful suspense as hundreds of feet above people were dangling from knotted up bedsheets attempting to make their way from one balcony to another in an effort to evade the flames. Over 450 firefighters from 23 different stations ultimately arrived on the scene to combat the fire. Crews ascending the stairwells to the upper floors encountered a hellish scene, describing thick plastic smoke and an intense heat as they neared the point of origin for the fire. Screams for help echoed from behind sealed hotel room doors as first responders worked their way through the building, with the fire flaring outside of occupied rooms as it radiated outward from the elevator lobbies into the corridors of the floors on the East Tower. The fire eventually engulfed much of the upper portion of the Hilton's East Tower, leading to the surreal scene of flames licking upward nearly 100 feet into the clear Vegas night sky as the iconic Hilton sign glowed in the background. Helicopters circled the Hilton, navigating through unending thick clouds of smoke as aerial crews worked in concert with their colleagues on the ground to airlift guests from the hotel's rooftop. Meanwhile, firefighters provided assistance at the hotel switchboard where operators directed guests through steps to improve their chances of survival, and an intercom system cautioned guests not to break the windows of their rooms to avoid providing additional oxygen to fuel the fire. Floor by floor, crews battled against the blaze, and after several grueling hours, they managed to finally extinguish the last remnants of the fire. Only after the last flames had died out did the full scope of the carnage at the Hilton come into view. Eight guests at the hotel had perished in the fire. The first victims of the fire were three hotel guests found in the eighth floor elevator lobby. At least two of these fatalities were the result of misdirection from a hotel employee. Gerald Ingram, a guest on the ninth floor, asked a hotel employee where he should go to escape the smoke filling his floor. The employee initially appeared confused, but then told the guest to use the elevator to get to the ground floor. Ingram and two other hotel guests crammed into an elevator and immediately realized the mistake they'd made. The elevator opened on the eighth floor, where they were instantly met with a thick mass of black smoke. Ingram threw himself to the ground where he was able to breathe fresh air, but his two companions weren't so lucky. They collapsed to the ground and were unconscious within seconds. Ingram crawled along the dark hallway until he saw a light under a door, which he entered. He then stayed there and was able to safely wait out the fire until help arrived. Four other guests died on upper floors as the fire ascended the building by leaping from elevator lobby to elevator lobby. Later investigations showed that each of the four guests that died in their rooms on the upper floors had opened the doors to their rooms, which allowed the suffocating smoke to billow inside. And the last fatality was a guest that tragically fell to his death just as firefighters were bringing the blaze under control. Over 300 others in the hotel, including 48 firefighters, suffered injuries, largely from smoke inhalation. More than 100 guests sustained injuries serious enough to be admitted to local hospitals for treatment, including singer Natalie Cole, who'd been scheduled to perform at the Hilton the night of the fire. Meanwhile, guests at the Hilton who were uninjured in the blaze were relocated to other Las Vegas properties. 
The casino and hotel reopened just nine days after the fire with 1,000 rooms available. The rest of the rooms were repaired over a three-month period at an estimated cost of $10 million. Baron Hilton, head of the famed hotel chain, issued a statement of condolence and promised to pay for the best medical care for any guests who were injured in the fire. No doubt that this offer was nothing more than an effort to stave off litigation, but nevertheless, the inevitable lawsuits against the Las Vegas Hilton followed. Attorneys for survivors of the blaze pointed to the hotel's failure to maintain consistent fire safety measures on the property. This resulted in the company paying victims of the catastrophe a $16.5 million settlement. The sting to the local community caused by the tragedy at the Hilton was compounded by the fact that Las Vegas had suffered another devastating hotel fire just three months prior. An electrical fire in a ground floor kitchen at the then MGM Grand caused flames to spread throughout the gaming area and spewed smoke up into the hotel tower. In total, 85 people lost their lives in that blaze, hundreds were injured, and images of MGM Grand guests being evacuated from the hotel by helicopter were televised across the country. The sight of the Hilton being transformed into a towering inferno so soon after the ghastly MGM Grand Blaze reinforced a panic among local officials that Vegas was developing a reputation for fire-prone hotels. That perception could ultimately harm the lifeblood of the city's economy, tourism. After the MGM Grand tragedy, fire officials in Clark County prepared recommendations for updating the fire code, which would have led to the implementation of the most rigorous fire safety standards in the country. But when this proposal was submitted to legislators at the state capitol in Carson City, the regulations failed to gain traction. Many legislators were of the belief that the MGM Grand Fire was a one-off, a rare occurrence. It was apparently unfathomable to them that in a city of high-rise hotels, a future fire could be a concern. Plus, developers, with their campaign contributions, lobbied hard against regulations that they believed would slow down business and cost money to implement. But the opposition to drastic reforms of the fire codes all but melted away after the Hilton blaze, and the state of Nevada went on to enact the toughest fire code regulations and inspection protocols in the nation. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Philip Klein was originally from the Bay Area in California. The wayward son of an Air Force officer, his father later described him as the black sheep of the family. Klein, a former altar boy, routinely ran into trouble in his youth, which then led to him being subjected to routine beatings by his disciplinarian father. 
As a teenager, the young man even briefly attempted to escape his chaotic home life by running away to Las Vegas. Klein's dislike of the routine imposed by school led to him dropping out in the ninth grade. The directionless youth took jobs in the service industry to support himself after dropping out, but he quickly fell into a criminal lifestyle, committing a series of petty crimes. These included stealing cars, transporting stolen property, embezzlements, and possessing burglary tools. He finally left the Bay Area for good in 1980, traveling first to Michigan for a period of time before settling, as best he could, in Las Vegas, the same city that had attracted the lost soul in his teen years. Upon moving to Vegas, Klein continued to work in the service sector, though he persisted with his pattern of only holding jobs for a short period of time. He was first hired as a change cashier at the El Cortez, but was promptly fired from that job for embezzling $200 from the casino. Klein then briefly worked as a busboy at the MGM Grand before landing his fateful job at the Las Vegas Hilton. Initially following the fire at the Hilton, Klein had been hailed as a hero for his efforts to squelch the flames in their early stages and for warning guests of the danger. But shortly after the investigation into the blaze began, police had questions about the young man's version of events leading up to the deadly incident. Their doubts increased after it was determined that three other minor blazes had broken out in the Hilton around the same time as the fire in the eighth floor elevator lobby one in a ninth-floor firehouse cabinet, one in a third-floor elevator lobby, and one in a second-floor linen closet housing uniforms for room service staff. Klein's own words were ultimately as undoing as he gave three written statements in the immediate aftermath of the fire. One to the Hilton, one to investigators with the fire department, and one to police detectives. The first two statements were consistent, but the one to the police piqued investigators' interest. Klein wrote in his statement to the police, I grabbed a trash can and filled it up with fire, and I put the couch out, and then I went to get some more water to put the curtain out. The word fire was then crossed out. Investigators considered this to be a Freudian slip, warranting a closer look at the hero busboy. The day after the fire, detectives arrived at Klein's house and asked if he'd mind coming down to the police station for an interview. Once at the station, Klein agreed to take a polygraph exam to clear his name. Klein performed poorly on the polygraph, and after two hours of intensive questioning, detectives decided to call the suspect's bluff regarding his story, telling him they knew he started the fire and the best thing for him now was to just come clean. The young busboy crumbled. He started crying and admitted that his initial story had been a lie. Klein told investigators that early in his shift on the night of the fire, he met a well-dressed man on the seventh floor of the hotel who introduced himself only as Joe. The two men struck up a conversation and hit it off. The pair agreed to meet each other later that night on the eighth floor while Klein was on a break. As Klein was relaxing on a couch in the elevator lobby, Joe arrived as previously planned and joined Klein on the couch. The stranger then pulled out a joint. The two passed the marijuana back and forth as they cuddled and fooled around, but then Joe accidentally dropped the lit joint onto some nearby curtains, instantly igniting a small fire. Joe bolted from the scene at the sight of the flames while Klein tried to put out the fire and alert those nearby to the danger. With that admission, Klein was placed under arrest and charged with eight counts of murder and one count of arson.
Philip Klein's trial for murder and arson occurred over a six-week period starting in late 1981. The defense's argument was that Klein had accidentally started the fire with no intent of causing harm, and the eight deaths were the result of the Hilton's failure to maintain proper fire safety measures. Klein's attorney had to hire out-of-state expert witnesses who were familiar with fire mechanics because nobody from the state of Nevada was willing to assist in the defense. Klein's lawyers also argued that their client couldn't possibly have been in multiple places at the same time to start the four fires at the Hilton the night of February 10th. In fairness to the defense, in the days following the fire, police initially said they had strong suspects for a second arsonist, though nobody else was ever actually arrested. The prosecution, however, had a different take. Fire investigators attempted to replicate Klein's story under controlled conditions, but curtains of the type used in the Hilton elevator lobbies failed to ignite when a lit joint or cigarette was held to the material. Investigators determined through repeated experiments that the only way to ignite the curtains was with an open flame. Video of the tests played for the jury demonstrated that it took only six seconds to obtain ignition of the curtains with the flame from a cigarette lighter. Then there was the parade of incriminating eyewitnesses. A waitress that worked in the room service area on the second floor of the Hilton reported that Klein seemed obsessed with getting as many people as possible out of the hotel the night of the fire. Other witnesses testified that Klein boasted about wanting to be a hero and that he desired the limelight. The prosecution painted a picture of a young man obsessed with obtaining celebrity by any means necessary. A cellmate of Klein's at the county jail offered what was perhaps the most damning testimony against the alleged firebug. He testified that Klein told him that after starting the fire on the eighth floor, he stopped and used a phone on the third floor to call a friend. Klein asked his friend to phone in a threat to the Hilton so the fire could be pinned on organized crime elements. The friend suggested that Klein instead start some diversionary fires so the police would have a harder time pinning the blaze on him. The prosecution then presented the jury with Klein's own videotape confession, which he provided to police the day after the fire. The prosecution continued to hammer home its case by presenting a fire investigator to poke holes in Klein's initial story about using a trash can to throw water at the blaze. The investigator had tried to replicate filling the type of trash can allegedly used by Klein in the same sink at the Hilton, but was only able to fill the can with about an inch of water. After the defense called only one witness, the case went to the jury. That jury quickly found Klein guilty on all counts. Several jurors were strongly persuaded by the testimony of a hotel guest who said she witnessed Klein on the phone reporting the fire before any sign of fire was present, indicating the busboy raised the alarm before setting the curtains alight. This was strong evidence that Klein sparked the blaze in an effort to become a hero and gain a bit of stardom, as one juror later explained her understanding of the motive. In subsequent deliberations, the jurors promptly ruled out the prosecutor's request for the death penalty, since they agreed that Klein had not intended to kill anyone when he started the fire. The only question was whether or not Klein would die in prison or have a chance of once again being a free man. On March 23, 1982, Philip Klein was sentenced to eight back-to-back -back life terms without the possibility of parole for the deaths. Klein also received a 15-year concurrent prison term for the first-degree arson charge. Klein. 
Klein granted a jailhouse interview to a local Las Vegas newspaper over two decades after his conviction, where he finally came clean about what really happened the night of the fire. Earlier in the day, on February 10, 1981, a friend gave Klein a joint laced with cocaine and PCP, warning him not to smoke the whole thing at once. Klein ignored this advice when he sat down on a couch in an eighth-floor elevator lobby of the East Tower while on a break. There never was any mysterious man named Joe who met the busboy for a rendezvous. As the powerful narcotics took hold, Klein lazily flicked the cigarette lighter in his hand. Then, for no reason other than being in a PCP-induced stupor, he used the lighter to set fire to some nearby curtains. After the fire got out of control and he evacuated the eighth floor, Klein hoped police wouldn't tie him to the blaze. But after he broke down under police questioning, he felt the fire and the punishment resulting from it were karmic repayment for the string of petty crimes he'd committed but for which he had never been prosecuted. Klein said, You don't get away with nothing. It just comes back and gets you. Klein stressed he had no intention of hurting anyone when he set the fire, blaming his murderous actions on the PCP lace joint messing with the drugs. I, I couldn't handle it. I was weak-minded." A police investigator who had worked the Hilton arson case responded to Klein's statements. Only he knows his intentions. You set a fire in a crowded hotel, what do you expect to happen? There's no certainty as to the veracity of what Klein said in this interview, given that this is at least his third version of the events that transpired on the night of February 10, 1981. But Klein did have this to say about his actions. I can't bring back them eight people, and that's what messes with me the most, is I can't undo what I did." Philip Klein is expected to serve out the rest of his days at the Nevada State Prison. If there's a silver lining to be found in the tragic fire at the Las Vegas Hilton and the previous deadly blaze at the then-MGM Grand a few months earlier, it's the strict fire code regulations that came into effect following these tragedies. There have been other major hotel fires in Las Vegas, including a massive fire in 2008 on the roof of the Monte Carlo, which eventually covered the top four floors of the exterior of the hotel. But in the decades since those new regulations came into effect, there hasn't been a single reported fire-related fatality at any Las Vegas Strip resort. To learn more about this Las Vegas true crime story and many others, visit MayhemInTheDesert.com and get yourself acquainted with the darker side of Sin City's history. Sin City Stories, Vegas True Crime, is based on material researched and written by Megan and Anthony Smith and is adapted for podcast, edited, and narrated by Jeff Walker. Sin City Stories, Vegas True Crime, is a co-production of Mayhem in the Desert and Walker New Media. Copyright 2024. Say goodbye 
to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.